You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We've now moved from Genesis to Exodus, from a book that tells the origin story of the people of Israel to a book that tells the story of how they sought freedom from slavery. Exodus. Exit. Us. A lot of time has passed since Abraham and Sarah scratched their heads at how God could create a nation without providing them with even a single child. And now their descendants are so numerous that the king of Egypt views them as a threat. Enough time has passed that this new pharaoh could not reasonably be expected to have known Joseph personally, but he does seem to be willfully ignoring his own history. We don't know why he views the Israelites as a threat. Is it simply because there are so many of them? Is it because they're different and he fears difference? Whatever the reason, Pharaoh convinces his people that the Israelites are dangerous, that they cannot be trusted, that they are a threat to the safety of the Egyptian people. And he says, look, the Egyptian people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, where they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Are they really more powerful? If so, how do the Egyptians manage to enslave them? Pharaoh doesn't offer any proof to back up those statements. This seems like the case of a corrupt leader cultivating a fear of immigrants, a fear of the other, in order to secure his own wealth and power. This seems like fake news. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The Egyptians do what Pharaoh wants and enslave the Israelites, and we're told they were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The Israelites suffered, but their numbers also continued to increase. Pharaoh continues to view the Israelites as a threat, and he decides that the solution to this threat is to control their numbers by murdering all newborn Israelite boys. Girls, less valuable, less of a threat, will be allowed to live. But Pharaoh miscalculates because the greatest threats to his plan are two women, Shipra and Puah. Pharaoh orders them to continue to assist the Hebrew women when they give birth, but to kill every boy who is born. The adult women mothers remain valuable. The boy babies are not. Shipra and Puah are are described as Hebrew midwives in our English translation of the original text, but it's not actually clear if they were Hebrew women who were also midwives, or perhaps Egyptian women or women of some other unnamed ethnic group who focused their midwifery practice on helping Hebrew women? Are they insiders helping their own people or allies? We don't know. We just know that they are fiercely committed to saving lives. Shipra and Pua do not directly challenge Pharaoh's orders. To do so would have likely resulted in their deaths. 
But they also do not obey him. They let the boys live. Why? Because they feared God. Not fear in the sense of terror, fear in the sense of awe and respect that led them to act courageously because they wanted to align their actions with God's will. This is a story of genocide. It's really difficult material, but I wish I had the time to write a novel or make a movie out of this story because I have a lot of questions and it would be fun to explore them in a creative medium. Yes, that's actually my idea of fun. I don't know any novels or movies that explore this story in depth, but if you want to read a great book that asks and answers a lot of these sorts of questions, you should check out Womanist Midrash by Dr. Will Gaffney. You may recall I also mentioned Dr. Gaffney's work in last week's sermon. So back to my questions. First, The text has established that the Israelite people are already so numerous that Pharaoh believes they are a threat, and that sense of threat increases as the Israelite population continues to grow. So it's unlikely that Shipra and Puah are the only midwives who help Israelite women give birth. They'd need help. In Womanist Midrash, Dr. Gaffney describes Shipra and Puah as heads of their midwifery guild. Perhaps there's this whole host of women working to subvert Pharaoh's plans under Shipra and Pua's capable leadership. This resistance requires more than simply helping babies be born. It's not enough to simply be preoccupied with ensuring a baby is born if you haven't thought about how you're going to care for it after it's born. Now, what are they doing with all the male babies? How are they hiding the fact that boys continue to be born? Are they perhaps disguising at least some of the newborn boys as girls? Are they just pretending there's something in the water and while lots of babies continue to be born, they're just all girls? It's fun to think about. I suspect they employed a whole host of methods, but there are two that we are told about. First, it's important to note that Shipra and Pua In order for Shipra and Pua to lead a resistance against the Pharaoh, they need the support and buy-in of the Israelite people. Everyone has a role to play if they're going to be successful. Imagine them, perhaps, presenting a newborn baby boy to his mother and saying with a wink, it's a girl, and the mother looking at her son, nodding in agreement and saying, it sure is. Moses' mother, Jochebed, was an active participant in the resistance. Risking her own life and that of the rest of her family, she hid her infant son for three months. How she managed to hide him, we don't know, but she did. Eventually, she knew she couldn't hide him any longer, and she puts him in a waterproof basket and places him in the river. Which is a horrifying choice for a mother to have to make. If my child stays stays with me, he will surely die. If I stick him in a basket on the river, he might die. But maybe, just maybe, something miraculous will happen to him. And a miracle does happen. Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses, adopts him, and is in fact the person who gives him his name. Moses means, I drew him out of the water. Presumably, his own mother had given him an appropriate Israelite name in those first three months, 
but that name has been lost and Moses's Israelite identity erased, at least for now. In this part of the story, we add two more women to the resistance, Moses's sister Miriam and Pharaoh's sister. Miriam carefully watches her brother float down the river and then bravely negotiates with Pharaoh's sister to arrange for his own mother to care for the child, with pay. Pharaoh's sister seems to be aware of the resistance and defies her own brother by adopting this Israelite baby. Now, clearly, not every Israelite boy who was born during this time could be floated down the river and adopted by Pharaoh's sister. What happened to those other baby boys? Maybe some of the mothers managed to hide their sons as daughters. Maybe some other baby boys were adopted by other wealthy Egyptians, but not all of them. Some baby boys were being raised as boys by their families, and Pharaoh notices. So Pharaoh summons the midwives and asks them why they've disobeyed his orders. Shipra and Pua use Pharaoh's own racist attitudes against him, claiming that it's not their fault that some baby boys remain alive. The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Cameron B.R. Howard notes that the Hebrew word translated as vigorous shares the same root as the word life. So the language is playfully reminding the reader that the Hebrew women are full of life. Their identity resists death. It's true that these women are full of life and actively resisting death, but Shipra and Puah are also lying to Pharaoh. Israelite women are not just popping babies out with startling speed. They're lying, which is interesting because even though we all know Christians lie, if you spent even a small amount of time in the church, you know we're not supposed to lie. So why are we still telling this story in our churches? Now, we don't have time for a really deep dive into the history of Christ- Christian ethics this evening, but Shepra and Pua show us some- that it's sometimes okay to lie. People have faced this ethical dilemma throughout history, but one specific example occurred in World War II. Yes, it's wrong to lie, but it's more important to protect human life. So if you're hiding a Jewish person in your attic and a Nazi officer bangs on your door and asks if you are hiding a Jewish person in your attic, you lie. You say no with a clear conscience. Shipra and Puar are not punished by God for lying, And even more intriguingly, they're not punished by Pharaoh for disobeying his orders. These are two fiercely brave and powerful women. The text says, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. It's an interesting way to word this blessing. God gave them families. God did not give them husbands. God did not allow them to be assumed into a good man's family. They're not property. That's not the blessing. Dr. Gaffney notes, there's no mention of men in their lives. Even if they are married, they, not their husbands or other men, are the heads of their households. 
This is a story of matriarchs. That's the blessing made explicit by the text, but there's an additional blessing implicit in the text. We know their names. We can say their names. We can remember these heroic women by name. Shipra, which means beauty. Pua, which likely means girl. In her book, The Year of Biblical Womanhood, Rachel Held Evans wrote about the Eshet Chayil, the woman of valor found in Proverbs 31. Since the release of the book, this phrase has become a rallying cry used mostly by women to encourage other women. Eshet Chayil will cry or type into the comments on social media posts, well done, woman of valor. Shipra and Pua, the other unnamed midwives, Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, Ashet Chayil, women of valor. We're living through times when we're reminded on a daily basis that our choices impact the lives of those around us. Every day we make choices that help or hurt other people. In the systems we participate in that support racism, misogyny, and classism, and smaller individual choices like buying local or social distancing or wearing masks, not to protect ourselves, but to protect others. May we choose well. May we make choices that, as our baptism vows proclaim, respect the dignity of every human being. May we be inspired by the fearless examples of Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, Miriam, and every mother in this story who risked her life to save a child's life. Ashet Chayil, women of valor. In the strong name of the triune God who creates, redeems, and sustains. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.